Welcome to the Self-Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at Self-Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. I love it. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for braving the snow this morning. It's great to see you here. Man, we just have such an amazing staff of people here. Uh, they threw this together um, just you know, on very short notice, Aaron and the team just working together. And then you have people like Dan, who doesn't bring technical skills like for this kind of thing, but brings that silky smooth voiceover and everything. So it's just like, I just am amazed at the team that we have in place. And we're gonna move into this series called Directions, uh, which takes seriously that change is difficult. When things change, man, we get thrown off at times. It also takes grief seriously. And we're going to walk through some of those different aspects of grief. But before we get into that, uh, I just wanted to give you just a quick update because uh, we've had some questions this week just about how some of the different news articles about coronavirus affect what's going on with church, with South, with different things. So just to walk you through really quickly. Um, we will be talking through some of this as a staff and, and a team that we put together to, to do the whole re-entry thing over the next week. But right now, uh, what we are leaning into is this. Right now, we're going to stay doing what we're doing, and let me explain why. Uh, this week, the governor uh, gave a, an announcement and said that they were asking us to reduce in-person gatherings um, for sort of personal gatherings, family gatherings. The whole point of that was to enable things like churches to continue doing what they were doing at the level that would, they were doing it. So right now, Arapahoe County is in what's called level one, uh, which enables us in a building this size to have a gathering of up to 125 people in this room if masks are in place and things like that. So that's what we're going to continue to do. That's what the government said that we could do, and we're going to stick with that. Now, at the same time, some of you may have heard there was a federal court case where a, a uh, church in Denver took the state of Colorado to court and said, well, we don't think it's right that you should mandate masks in worship. Um, and that case was successful. So then one of the other questions was, well, are we just going to throw out everything that we're doing? And the answer is no, we're not. We're going to try and walk this line uh, in between uh, what we think is, is sensible and what we think is right. And, and here's the thing. In doing that, we won't always get it right. Uh, we're going to try and keep functioning healthily while also trying to do uh, what is safe for people to enable as many people to join us in, for in-person worship as we can right now. Now, even for me personally, just walking through that, there's this line that I'm always trying to figure out. In the guidelines for the state of Colorado, there's a provision for uh, being a religious officiant, uh, that you don't have to wear a mask. But every time I come into this building for Sunday worship, I have this line of, well, when am I a religious officiant? When am I not a religious officiant? Am I a religious officiant when greeting you at the door? Am I one when standing on stage? Am I one that's in worship? And, and so many of those things, they leave you with this sense of like tension. To be honest, it would be easier for me and our staff and our teams if the government just said, do this, do this, do this, and we just did it. But we're also trying to find this line. So we appreciate your grace, and we appreciate your input as well. For some of you, you might come to us and say, hey, we feel like that we're not being strict enough, and we need to hear that from you because we won't always know. We want you to feel like you can come to your home community and be in worship as much as possible. For some of you, you'll feel this tension of, I am so sick of this thing. Can you guys just move on already? And, and we need to hear that from you as well. The thing is, when we hear from you, that doesn't mean we'll just be able to do exactly what you want to do. Uh, we'll have to figure out this line of what works. But we're trying to do that with this sense of loving our neighbor 
and loving our community really well. So hopefully that helps you understand some of what we're work, working through as a team. Uh, and we just appreciate the grace that you've shown so far. You, you have all been wonderful. And, and so, two directions. Here we go. Experiencing God in change. Man, 2020 has been a year already, right? It was a year back somewhere in April, it felt, and now it's still continuing. Someone said the other day, I think that this is March 317th or something like that. We just feel like we've been stuck in this moment of it's always March. And when you see articles like murder hornets arriving on the West Coast of America, you start to question like, wow, how is this thing going to turn out? Is it going to all be okay in the end? And in amongst that, haven't every one of us experienced different levels of change, uh, different levels of loss? Uh, I found this sign. I don't know how clearly you can see it. Uh, I tried to make it big enough, but someone put up gravestones for Halloween of things that they were, were mourning. Uh, concerts had gone. Festivals had gone. Specifically, these people in this house, whoever they were, were grieving Mike's Hawaii trip. Not everyone's trip. Just Mike's, apparently this trip was going to be so good that even people that weren't going on it are sad that it no longer uh, is happening. And, and then sanity as well. A few days ago, the uh, astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson said that uh, apparently the day before election, a giant asteroid could crash into the Earth. And everyone went, well, that makes sense in 2020. I am not surprised that it was going to happen. It's been that sense of like, ah, change is everywhere. And change is difficult. Change is difficult when you are sort of on board with it, when you know it's coming. I, I just thought through some of my life changes. Uh, I thought through what it was to go from being single to being married going through this change from like doing whatever I wanted all the time to suddenly have somebody else that wanted a say in that. That was difficult, even though I was fully on board with it. And then I remember like having uh, our first kid. And, and if you have a question, like this is like eight years ago, have you and Laura changed at all in all of these years? Uh, we haven't really particularly. We still look pretty much the same. We have this vampiric gene, I think. Uh, it just, you know, it just everything stays normal. So I thought about just the change. I remember the day I took our first child, Elena, home. We actually, because we're those type of people, we took her straight from the hospital to my parents' house. There was about 50 people gathering for my brother's birthday, and she got passed around, all these different people. And then I remember the moment where I got her home, and then suddenly it became real. I was like, oh, this thing isn't going away. She's here for good. And now she screams when she doesn't get what she wants. The change is difficult. And I remember going from one to two, and then suddenly there was no peace like in the old way. You got to pass her off and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm done for a while. And now suddenly it was always like, you know, one to one. And then I remember the change when Jude came along and suddenly we moved from like the famous saying, we go from man-to-man -man coverage to zone defense. Like you've always got more than you can handle. You are officially outnumbered. Uh, and then there's the, the question of do you have a fourth one. And the theory is once you've had three, four doesn't make any difference. But I have no desire to test that theory right now. I remember listening to Jim Gaffigan, the comedian, talk about what is it like to have four kids? And he said, imagine that you're drowning and then somebody hands you a baby. And that is like this like moment. Uh, the reason we call Judas because it's as close to the book of Revelation as you can get. And we're like, this is like the end. We're, we're done. Um, change is difficult when you plan for it 
And then it's perhaps more difficult when you don't plan for it. Think about what change can include. I'm going to throw in all these different things. It can include the grief of loss, and we'll get to that in a moment. It can include an event that just came out of nowhere and hit you like a freight train. And one of the things it seems to do is it seems to pull us out of the normal time of things. We, we feel like we've been grabbed and all of our forward motion has been stopped. This picture was the best I could find to explain uh, the story I'm about to tell you. Uh, a few months ago, my youngest daughter, uh, my oldest daughter, Elena, was trying to jump from the deck to the ground, which explains something about her personality. That's just how she does. She, she wants to go, and she goes. And so she jumped off the deck, and as she jumped, the back of her shorts hooked onto one of the hooks for holding plants on the deck, you know, one of the things that just hangs off the edge. And she suddenly found herself just suspended in midair, completely unable to help herself, completely unable to move. She was there, and she was just hanging. And I'm torn in this, like, fatherly sort of, like, sense of, do I leave her there long enough to get a photo or a video? Or do I feel the need to help her down before the hook gives way and breaks? And, and I went with the safe option. I, I just helped her down. But it was this moment of just watching her dangling there. And it was wonderfully hilarious. But at the same time, isn't that how we feel sometimes in the moment of change? Sometimes something happens to us, and we feel like we've been hit, and hit by a freight train. We feel like it's like that cow that's running away and someone lassoes it and all of its forward motion stops and it collapses to the floor. Those are just some of the ways that I might articulate how we experience change. So we're going to tap into this story from the Old Testament and we're going to watch a community go through change and recognize that we are a community going through change. We're going to talk about the idea that that can cause grief. It can cause a sense of loss. And that, that also, while it's a community thing, can be a very individual thing as well. What happens when we encounter change? The story we're about to look into is a story from about three and a half thousand years ago. It's a story of a community that a guy called Moses has led out of a land called Egypt. Now, it's, it's hard for us to put into any sense like just how significant this story was. Unless you can imagine yourself as a group of people that have lived for generation after generation in a nation that isn't their own, where they have no rights, no freedom, where they're completely under the control of somebody else. Perhaps the only story that we have to help us understand uh, in modern terms is the story of African black nations in slavery in the Western world, in Britain, in America, and things like that. This group of people, these Israelite nation, they have been there for 400 years at the point where we're going to get into the story. Think about what that's done to them. All of their cultural history has started to disappear. They're in this land called, called Egypt, where they are told to just produce and to produce and to produce, where they have no freedom. And then imagine what it feels like for that people to be rescued by somebody, to be pulled out. This guy called Moses appears and says that he has heard from God, and his job is to bring them out into this new promised land. And then, incredibly, he does it. Moses stands up to Pharaoh, this ruler of this other world, and, and Pharaoh blinks first. Pharaoh backs down. Yes, it's God behind the scenes that's doing it. We understand that story from, from our perspective. But imagine what it felt like to those people. God didn't seem to do anything till Moses turned up. And then for these people, this guy Moses, he takes them and he pulls them out of this 
other nation and he takes them into this new land and they stand on a mountain in this land that is free and God speaks to them as a whole group of people. But they're terrified. Hearing God is a scary thing. There's only a couple of times in history, sociologically, where a whole people group claim to hear from God. And so this group of people, they say this, God, don't speak to us. Speak through Moses. Let him be the one that tells us what he needs to tell us. And we'll be happy with that. They find this thing that I would call orientation. This uh, theologian, Walter Brueggemann, talks about this process of orientation and the couple of other things that will follow it. But they find this place where they're like, okay, everything is normal. Everything is good. We're going into this new land and this, this guy is hearing from God and he is speaking to us and all is well. And then what does it feel like for this community at the point we're about to enter for suddenly this guy to no longer be around? Suddenly, he's going to disappear. So this is the passage we're going to tap into today. This is Deuteronomy chapter 34. If you want to look at it in your text, we're going to go through the whole passage. Um, but here we go. Then Moses climbed Mount Nebu from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah across from Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land from Gilead to Dan, all of Nephtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev and the whole region from the Valley of Jericho and the City of Palms as far as Zoar. If you don't know where all those places are, it's absolutely okay, but it's a big piece of promised land that these people are going to move into. Then the Lord said to them, this is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in Moab in the valley opposite Bethpur. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. So multiple times in this people's history, this man, this hero has gone up to a mountain to hear from God. And every time he's come back down and the journey has continued until suddenly he goes up the mountain and he doesn't come down. The whole story is set up to just tell us how, how unexpected this is. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak and his strength was not gone. For this community, there's this sense of, oh, this guy is going to be around for a while. And then suddenly, he's not around anymore. There's this change that takes place. And any time you experience change, there is loss. And loss brings this sense of grief. Part of the reason I think this story is so important for those of you that have been at South for a while, we are a community that is experiencing change. I've been here just a few short weeks. There was a year where there was no pastor and a staff that did an amazing job filling in on an interim level. And then before that, there was Ryan and he was here for seven years and there was a sense for many of you that things were great. But then before Ryan, there was somebody else, there was Brad, and for a season, maybe that was great as well. And there's all of this history that goes back and back and back, and yet you've experienced this sense of what it is for a leader that you thought, oh, maybe he'll be here for years. And suddenly, he's not here. I just thought it would be a really cruel prank if, uh, if I just said in the midst of that, hey, it's not really working out, I'm moving on. I was like, wow, wow, I just got here, but it wouldn't be funny. Um, <laughs> It was funny in my head, <laughs> as lots of things. 
when you experience that change, you go into this process that, that Walter Brueggemann in his triad would call disorientation. You go into disorientation. Now, you may have a question, am I saying that word correctly? Because I believe in America you might say disorientation, or it's not disorientating, it's disorienting. I'm not sure, but I'm not sure you're saying it right. I'm sure I am saying it right. We are in this time of disorientation. What is disorientation? The best way I can describe it is a feeling. I grew up occasionally trying to surf on the southwest coast of England, and occasionally going on trips to France. I was never particularly good, but good enough that I could try and get into some bigger waves than most people might be comfortable with. And I can remember this one time where I, I came off the board in a wave, and I felt this sensation of tumbling. Suddenly, all my perspective of what is up, what is down has gone. I'm just there, and I'm just hovering, and, and time seems to have slowed down, and I'm waiting for that moment where I can get back to the surface, but just as I do, this other wave comes across, and I'm pulled back down under, and I'm turning over and over again, and then you're back to the surface, and you can get caught in these series of waves for six, seven waves, and you're just waiting for enough of a break, and your breath slowly is becoming less and less and less, like present within you, you, that sense of your chest constricting and that uncertainty about when you'll get back to the surface. That's disorientation. That's that sense of like, ah, oh, am I going to get out of this? Which way is up? Which way is down? Because there's no ocean in Denver, those of you that are locals, maybe a, a snowstorm or something is a better example. But you hear stories about people getting caught in avalanches and they're so disorientated that up and down become terms that no longer make sense. The way that you figure out where you are is you, you actually allow some spit to form in your mouth and you create a space, and if the spit falls, then that's down. And if it doesn't, then it's up. But eventually, like, there's this sense of like, I just, I'm not sure where I am. That's what I think this community that we're looking at here is going through. And I would expect that for some of you, when you lost a leader of this community here, I expect there was some sense of that as well. This process of change can be disorienting. I would extend that sentence, change is loss, and loss brings grief, and grief is disorientating. For those of you that have experienced personal grief, there's that sense of, ah, oh, I feel like time stopped, and I'm not sure where I am anymore. We'll get into some of that in a few moments. Grief and, and, and change and loss, it's something that organizations all over the world struggle with. It's not unique to churches. So sales drop in up to 60%, for up to 60% in companies that suddenly lose a CEO. A large number of organizations don't survive the loss of the person that founded it. Think about a few years ago, Apple computers, to be able to go through what they went through, where Steve Jobs, suddenly this guy that had created absolute magic and his products had taken over the world, suddenly isn't there, and it becomes this question of, like, can Apple survive that? Now, on the surface, their sales have continued, but actually stories that come out of Apple repeatedly are, the culture just isn't the same anymore. We're no longer the creative force that we once were. We're just surviving on products that come from our past. We don't have that same aura that we used to have. Steve Jobs just had this presence. So for organizations, there's this sense of loss. And here's the last one. The most challenging time in the life of a faith community is the loss of its founder. What happens when that person isn't there anymore? This is what this group, this Moses community is walking through. Can we survive this? 
Do we even bother keeping on going? Do we just go back to Egypt and just say that the whole project was, just wasn't worth it? There's this land that apparently we've been promised, this promised land, but do we go? Or do we just stay? What does the future look like for us? That sense of like change, it means loss. And loss means grief. And grief is disorientating. It leaves you in that sense, like my daughter Elena, I'm hanging on a hook and I'm not sure what comes next. It's an organizational thing, but it's also an individual thing as well. And some of you are people that are well acquainted with grief. You've been through this sense of, ah, I feel so lost right now. It comes when we experience the death of a loved one. When we experience what it is for someone to no longer be with us physically, but they feel like they're still with us spiritually or emotionally. It feels like their presence is still in the building. I remember when my uncle passed away, one of the, the most sort of painful losses to me still, he was still fairly young, and I remember what it was to, to lose him. I remember what it was to walk through that process of his sickness. I, by nature, I'm an Enneagram 7 for you Enneagram people out there. By nature, I hate pain and I hate negative emotions and I try and avoid them all costs. So when I found out my uncle was sick, I didn't go visit him for several months. And I remember the moment that I walked into the room because my mom said, he's not going to be around much longer. You should go visit him. And I remember walking into the room and seeing this little old man sat in a corner. And to give you some perspective, my uncle was the most charismatic man that I have ever met in my life. He was, as the Irish would say, a man you don't meet every day. He had this aura to him. Whenever he walked into a room, people paid attention. And, and seeing this little old man in a corner and realizing that that was my uncle and what he looked like now was the beginning of this sense of grief. And I remember what it was when people said to my aunt, well, he's still with you, really. And then this question of like, ah, but does that help? What it was for her to feel stuck in this disorientating moment of, ah, he still feels like he's here, but he isn't here anymore. Divorce or separation caused that same sense of grief, maybe not as profound as, as a death, but there's that sense of, ah, it's just not normal now. I feel like I've caught, I'm caught up in the suspension of time, and sickness as well does the same thing. There's a, a great article by a guy called Tony Billings who talks about his experience as a pastor and a father and what it meant for him to get a terminal cancer diagnosis. And he said the most challenging part was all of my expectations of what was normal were now gone. We have this framework for what a normal life equals. We expect to go through the rituals of marriage. We expect to go into giving birth to children, probably, and we expect to have grandchildren one day. And suddenly, when that is called into question, everything becomes difficult. We feel very disorientated, very lost. But let's just make it a little more lighthearted, because it's not all of those deep, profound things. Actually, grief happens any time we lose something that we value. In little ways, grief happens every time we lose something that we value. I found this article just lurking around on the internet. Giving birth during coronavirus, something has been stolen from us. This person sketches out what it is to have a child during this era and to, to have a partner that wasn't able to be present with them at the birth, to have a child that after five, six months still hasn't been hugged by its grandparents. There's a loss there as well. 
And you can think about anything in your life over this year that you've lost, a graduation ceremony, the chance to go and watch your kids walk across a stage, the chance to walk across a stage for yourself, income from a job, a job itself. There are so many things that in this weird 2020 that we might have lost. And our temptation can be to say, well, we should just get over it. But actually, loss, change is loss, and loss is grief. And grief is disorientating. And the process of coming through grief can take years and very rarely takes place because we avoid it. Enneagram sevens do not get through grief well. Change is loss, and loss brings grief. And grief is disorientating. So, some questions to help us as we kind of navigate through this. What do we do, or what should we do, when we encounter change? So I'm going to give you a couple of things that hopefully will help you at some point in your life. Some of you may go through grief for years. Some of you may be grieving right now. Some of you will not go through serious grief for some time. And yet, hopefully, these principles will help us as we look backwards. And in a couple of weeks that are following, we're going to start to do this thing where, after looking backwards, we'll begin to look upwards and ask, where is God in the midst of our grief? And, and then we'll finally start to take those steps forward. And, and we'll talk about what that means for us as a community. But I want us to start by taking the looking back part seriously. Grieving well involves looking backwards. When you experience grief, first thing I would say is this, take your time to lament. It's okay to not be okay. It's okay to say, I am not all right right now. A tendency can be to say, I'm fine. Everything's good, but it is okay to not be okay. I think that the, I'm going to put that back there. I think that people from uh, back in history, they were better at this process of lament than we were. I think they were willing to take their time to say, oh, this affected me profoundly. I thought about that song that we just sang, Great is Thy Faithfulness. The words are amazing. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, our Father. There is no shadow of turning with me. It talks about how God's mercies are new every morning. But have you ever taken the time to go and read where that comes from? It comes from this book called Lamentations, and this is chapter 3 that those verses are buried right within. Think about some of these verses as you think about those spectacular verses. I am a man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. He has made my skin and my flesh grow old. He has broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. He has walled me in so I cannot escape. He has weighed me down with chains. Even when I call out or cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has barred my way with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has trampled me in the dust. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say, my splendor is gone and all that I hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. And this is where he starts to move into like the good part, the part we sing all the time. But that good part, that part he sings is based on being able to sing his sense of lament for the verses before that, that sense of ah, everything isn't okay. And people 
rarely are able to do that today. When we need to lament, we have to look to poets and people that seem better at it than we are. This is a W.H. Auden, a poet from 60, 70 years ago. Read these words. This is a guy that knows how to lament. He was my north, my south, my east and west, my working week, my Sunday rest, my noon, my midnight, my talk, my song. I thought that love would last forever. I was wrong. The stars are not wanted now. Put out everyone. Pack up the moon and dismantle the sun. Pour away the ocean and sweep up the wood. For nothing now can ever come to any good. This is a man who is embracing lament. Our tendency as Western people, I think, is to move very quickly from that sense of lament to that sense of everything is fine. And yet history tells us, and people from old tell us, that that actually taking the time to say, no, I'm not okay, is actually one of the healthiest things you can do. To acknowledge how change has affected you is a positive thing. To recognize that you have lost something in a change, whether it's an organizational change like South has been through, whether it's a personal change like you might be going through or will go through at some point in your life. To be able to say, that change has affected me and I am hurt and I am angry is a good thing. To realize that you are probably shaking your fist at somebody, even if that is the creator of the universe, is a healthy thing. And for thousands of years, people were able to do that. And it seems to me that we've lost that ability now. Today, we say, unless you're positive, unless you're upbeat, that there's probably something wrong with you. And yet for thousands of years, this ability to experience change and say, I am not okay with that was seen as a healthy thing. There's something about reading poets that enable us to do this. This is a Soren Kierkegaard quote. What is a poet? An unhappy man who hides deep anguish in his heart, but whose lips are so formed that when the sigh and cry pass through them, it sounds like lovely music. And people flock around the poet and say, sing again soon. That is, may new sufferings torment your soul, but your lips be fashioned as before, for the cry would only frighten us, but the music, that is blissful. That, that quote, that W.H. Auden poem that we just read, it, it's beautiful words, it's well put together. That is a guy who's screaming his pain, screaming his emotion, as you and I, each of us at some point in our life, will do. In grief, it is okay to not be okay. The second thing I would say is this, uh, that maybe in a time of grief and change, expect the unexpected. We're told that grief follows a pattern. Maybe you've heard that they have the different stages of there's denial and then there's anger and, and dot, 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 five stages of grief that we're supposed to process. One of the most helpful things for me was to learn that those five stages that you might read about, they don't happen in a specific order. It doesn't all fit and make sense. You may feel like that swirling emotion takes you through all of those five stages in an hour, in a day. And that is okay as well. Let's go back to Lamentations for a second. Think about those positive verses that I just talked about. Um, In verse 22, he says this of chapter 3, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait to him. for him. The Lord is good 
for those whose hope is in him. If Lamentations was written by a 21st century Western person, that would be the end of the book. We found resolution. Everything has come back to normal. Think about how all of our movies end. What's the important thing for a movie to do? It's supposed to end with a positive, good ending. In 2012, a movie called The Master was made with Philip Seymour Hoffman. It was an absolute masterpiece. And it was not given a nomination for the best Oscar. Why? Because the end was tragic. And Hollywood forgives everything except one thing. Hollywood will only accept a story that has a good ending. All of our stories seem to end somehow on a positive note. And this one didn't. We demand that the resolution come through at the end, and that would be our resolution, but not in Lamentations written 3,000 years or something ago. Listen to the end of Lamentations. Slaves rule over us, and there is no one to free us from their hands. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the desert. Our skin is as hot as an oven, feverish from hunger. Women have been violating virgins in the town of Judah. Princes have been hung up by their hands. Elders are shown no respect. Young men toil at the millstone. Boys stagger under loads of wood. The elders are gone from the city gates. The young men have stopped their music. Joy is gone from our hearts. Our dancing has turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Because of this, our hearts are faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim. You, Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. Why do you forget us? Why do you forsake us for so long? Restore us to ourselves. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. That's a 3,000-year-old text finishing with like, I'm still there in lament. I had this moment where I recognized that God was present, but it didn't just fix everything. I went back into this time of, oh, I still don't feel like I can get through. I still feel broken. I still feel painful. The unexpected happens when you're grieving. Now, let me just say this. Uh, we are doing grief this week. If you're visiting or watching online, we are trusting you to join us in Lament Week. It will get more upbeat than this at different points. But because of our tendency to rush through, for this week, it's important that we choose to sit. This will make sense at some time, even if it isn't now. Expect the unexpected. There is no normal. Choose to look backwards, even though it's hard. In grief, learning to look back at what was actually brings so much value. My wife and I love romantic comedies, and usually they're very light and easygoing. But Sleepless in Seattle is this movie that has these moments where you're like, oh, you really just got to the deep core of my emotion. And I dug out this quote from Tom Hanks' character during this, this movie where he's asked, how do you survive? What are you doing to get through your grief? And he profoundly says this, I'm going to get out of bed every morning, breathe in and out all day long. And then after a while, I won't have to remind myself to get out of bed every morning and breathe in and out. And then after a while, I won't have to think about how I had it great and perfect for a while. This is a character that's choosing that process of looking backwards of saying, ah, it was wonderful. When you go through a time as an organization experiencing change, there is nothing wrong with looking back and saying, those years were so good. 
when you go through the change and loss of a different situation individually, there is nothing wrong with looking back and saying, oh, those years were so joyful, so wonderful. When you lose someone, looking back and saying, oh, it was so good when they were here. Those are good things. The funny thing to me is this, that grief and gratitude, they seem to hold hands with each other. They seem to run very close together. And actually, our grief is caused by this sense of, oh, it was great for a while. Because if it wasn't good, there's nothing to grieve. If it wasn't good, there's nothing to grieve. This is this group of people working through that process. We looked at how Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak nor his strength gone. The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. In Jewish culture, there's this set-aside period to take grief seriously. It breaks into these three categories. There's aninut, which is like this first moment when you lose a loved one. And then the shiva, which we may have heard of because it's fairly popular in culture. It's seven days of certain practices that take place and family come around. And then there's this 30 days that take place afterwards called shaloshin. 30 days where you are allowed to just have space to mourn. Now, you'd think 30 days seems pretty short, it seems like to expect people to move on after 30 days, that's nothing. And that's not really what this is about. But this process is actually honors the fact that rarely do people who grieve take 30 days to stop in our culture. Something about our culture says, get up and move on quickly with your life. 30 days is like a minimum amount of time. And this is Sheryl Sandberg, who's the CEO of Facebook, talking about what that process looked like for her. She lost her husband a few years ago. Tragically, he was jogging on a, on a running mill, uh, running a treadmill, and he fell and hit his head, and he died in the ambulance. And she talks about her different stages of grief that she processed. She talked about her anger in the ambulance at every driver that didn't move out of the way and stopped the process of her getting to the hospital quickly with her husband. And she talked about how she prayed these desperate one-line prayers, like, God, let me not die while I am still alive. But she talks about how taking time, 30 days to process a grief, enabled her to look backwards at everything that she had had. I have lived 30 years in these 30 days. I am 30 years sadder, and I feel like I am 30 years wiser. This is someone who is taking that time to grieve. And this is what we're told this group of people did from, with Moses. They grieved the loss. They grieved the change. They allowed that process to hit them. Life must be lived forwards, but it's understood backwards. That's Soren Kierkegaard again. You don't really get Soren Kierkegaard twice in a sermon most of the time, but it just felt like this profound sense of life must be lived forwards, but understood backwards. Looking back allows us to see the places that God has been with us. What might we see when we look backwards as a community? we might see markers of God's goodness in the past. One of the things I love about South is this sense of we are a Jesus community. I love our vision of we are living in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. As we look back as a community, it's probable that we should see moments where Jesus has walked that journey with us. This place was never about one person. It was never about you as important as your role might have been over the years. It will never 
be about me at South. It was never about Ryan. It was never about Brad. It was never about anyone who was sat on staff. It has always been about Jesus. We get to be a Jesus community in the world around us. When you look at this Moses community, you see that same sense of them finding God markers in amongst them, even before the story starts to move to some sense of resolution. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance. While the Lord spoke with Moses, whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance of their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp. But his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. This Moses community will transition to be led by this guy Joshua who will take them into this promised land that they were told that they would have. And you see when you look back into these old texts, this is Exodus 33, Moses has been everything that they thought he was. He was someone who heard from God and relayed that message to the people. He was incredibly important to the life of this community. But you see lurking there at the end of that text, Joshua was there all the time. God knew where the story was going. It was just there lurking in the text. Joshua did not leave the tent. He was there in God's presence, just waiting, just waiting for that time where Moses would move on and the story would continue. For the people, the story was about Moses, but it was never really about Moses. South is never about Alex. Walter Brueggemann, in his triad, talks about this orientation, then this disorientation, and then he talks, hopefully, about this idea of surprising reorientation. That moment where at some point you suddenly are like, God, you brought the story around. You knew what was happening. You were there in the midst of the grief, in the midst of the struggle. Slowly you get to see these markers that say, oh God, you were moving. And now we come towards that sense of where we'll move over the next couple of weeks where we start to talk about upwards and forwards. We talk about that hint that God was there all along. This is the beauty of this Jesus story. Think about the story of Jesus with its tragedy of crucifixion. And lament lands us in those couple of days after Jesus' death, that Good Friday and Saturday that we only tend to talk about at Easter time, right? It lands us in those moments. And I've always been struck by how profound that Saturday moment is. Because Good Friday, there's all the tragedy of crucifixion. But the Saturday is just blank. It's nothing. It's empty. There is no story on Saturday. It's sitting and waiting, and it feels empty. And in all of that story, the tragedy of Friday, the, the, the cold sort of numbness of Saturday, God is moving. He's moving them towards the joy of resurrection. They don't see it yet, but is this moment of surprising reorientation in their story. It's lurking there all the time. So as we as a community and you as individuals take grief seriously, as we take 2020 seriously, I'd love us to land on a couple of questions. I'd love you to ask this. What have I lost? 
for you as a participant in South over the changes that have taken place? What have you lost? For you in 2020, with all your different experiences, what have you lost? Part of processing grief recognizes that you've lost something. Maybe you lost an opportunity to participate in some kind of event. Maybe it was something as simple as I lost festivals, I lost con con uh, conferences. Maybe you lost Mike's Hawaii trip, whoever Mike is and whatever he's sad about it. What have you lost? But then another question I would have you ask is this. How am I thankful? Whatever you lost, what was it about it that was good? That might be easy to put a finger on. There may be an absolute sense of, of course, my relationship with this person was good. Of course, this job was good. But what is it that you've lost? And why are you thankful? What good gift did God give that was with you for a while? What good joy did you carry with you for a while? When you process grief, knowing how you were thankful is an important step. Recognizing what you've lost is an important step. Grief and gratitude, they seem to sit hand in hand with each other. You grieve because you've lost something good. Over this week, one of the things I'd encourage you to do is to tap into our daily team devotions. We walk through this process. You can find them online. And it's this slower process of being able to look every day and take lament, lament seriously. We will not lament well today. The Broncos are on, there's other things to watch, there's good things to do, there's snow to play in, there's excitement for the new winter season, skis are there to be sharpened, whatever it is that you do. I'm not expecting you to lament all week, but my encouragement is this, to take those two questions seriously. And over this week, as we prepare to look upwards as a community and ask, where is God in our midst now? Look to the past and say, why am I thankful? And what have I lost? In your individual life, ask, what have I lost? Why am I thankful? And do it repeatedly. And pray that God speaks to you in that process. Contemplating. Speak to our hearts. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give online at southfellowship.org slash give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks for listening, South family. Have a great rest of your day.